I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, an NPR Illinois Community Voices podcast for the Front Row Network, where we talk all things Disney. And today, I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am uh, about our interview and uh, about the moments that we get to share with you here in just a few minutes. But before I do that, I should introduce myself. My my name is Craig. I'm here with my co-host. I have Brett. Hi. (laughs) And I have Vanessa. Hello. And we have such a special episode here for you. We want to get right into it, but first we want to uh, just give you a quick bio of the individual that we are going to be discussing uh, today and just a wonderful interview with him. And so I wanted to talk to you a bit about Floyd Norman. Floyd began his career at the Walt Disney Company in 1956 as an in-betweener on Sleeping Beauty, becoming the first African-American artist hired to a long-term contract at the studio. Moving through the animation ranks at Disney, he went on to work for many Disney classics, including The Sword in the Stone and The Jungle Book. After Walt's passing, Norman co-founded Vignette Films with a business partner, Leo Sullivan. Together, they would go on to produce educational films for black school children and segments on Sesame Street and Fat Albert. Floyd Norman then returned to Disney in the 70s to work on Robin Hood, along with numerous stints at Hanna-Barbera on Saturday morning cartoons that we all know and love. More recently, Floyd has worked as a story artist for The Hunchback of Notre Dame and also for Toy Story 2 and Monsters Incorporated for Pixar. In 2007, Floyd Norman was named a Disney legend. He continues to work on numerous projects today, and in 2016, the film Floyd Norman, An Animated Life, co-directed by Michael Fiore and Eric Sharkey, was released and it is now available. We would encourage you to go to floydnormanmovie.com and check out where you can purchase that on Blu-ray. It's also available on Amazon Prime and on iTunes, and uh, so you can stream it right there as well. And it is such an outstanding documentary. I can't recommend it enough. Guys, do you have any uh, comments before we just jump right into the interview here? I am so excited. Uh, Yeah, there are no words, but I'm gonna have to find some. (laughs) All right, without further ado, our interview with Floyd Norman. Well, here we are with Disney legend Floyd Norman. We'd like to welcome you to the podcast, to uh, Beyond the Mouse, and also to NPR Illinois. So I want to say thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us today. Um, And we can't tell you how excited we are for this. Um, Actually, one thing I wanted to do right away was to wish you an early happy birthday. And I will oh, say <laughs> that uh, I am no Scarlett Johansson. That's a joke for all of you that have seen uh, Floyd's oh. documentary, Floyd Norman and Animated Life. But I, uh, I still, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily as, as great uh, as Scarlett Johansson, but hopefully you'll appreciate the happy birthday all the same. Yeah, well, you know, at Disney, they say your dreams come true. So, uh, <laughs> well, they are right uh, now. <laughs> so thank you. So yeah, Absolutely. so I, I wanted I wanted Scarlett to sing Happy Birthday uh, to me, and and she did just that. So there you go. <laughs> that is perfect. That is perfect. Yeah. So uh, you'll be turning what eighty five years old on June twenty second. So yeah, that's, uh, just around the corner. Doggone it! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good wonderful. Thing. <laughs> I like well, 45. For I like 45 better. Actually, I like 35 even better. Well, thank you so much You're for there. taking some time with us today. Um, <laughs> you bet. I wanted you bet. to actually start with there's a lot of events that have been unfolding in the, the past week, uh, particularly, but really the, the past decade uh, here. And we, I know that uh, hearing the story of you uh, purchasing a camera from Roy Disney and using that camera to actually film the Watts riots and how uh, you were able to use that footage uh, moving forward. And and really, uh, we're going to ask about some of the work that you've done in the civil rights realm as well. Um, But just wanted to, I I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment with all of the tragedy that's going on and just say whatever thoughts that you might have on that. Okay, sure, sure. 
Well, I don't consider myself any kind of a hero, as a matter of fact. Uh, the reason we took Roy Edward Disney's camera down onto the streets of Watts back in 1965 was simply as filmmakers and storytellers, uh, here we had an event unfolding right in our own community. And so when you are a filmmaker uh, and you have uh, cameras, and, and we did have a 16 millimeter camera, a Bolex, and then I purchased a, a second Bolex camera from Roy Edward Disney, the nephew, the nephew of Walt Disney. And I we took those two cameras down onto the streets of Watts back in 1965, using high speed black and white film because I guess this is long before video, you know, it, it was very difficult to shoot at night. So you had to have black and white, you couldn't shoot color. And then you had to have high speed black and white film. So we were able to get those images on film. We took that footage out to uh, NBC. And uh, while we were there, they prepared a, a special that would go out across the nation about what was happening in Los Angeles. So in a sense, we were kind of part of history. We, we weren't trying to be you know, significant. We were just documenting history. Vanessa, I think you had a question about uh, some of those videos as well. Yeah, well, um, you, you had created the, the series of African-American films to help educate the public and yeah. um, progress the civil rights movement, of course. And, and I was just wondering, in what ways can, do you think create creativity, what ways can it be used to further progress today? Well, you know, again, um, you know, we're, we're filmmakers, and which means mainly we're entertainers. I mean, both my, my, my associates and myself uh, worked in the uh, entertainment media. I worked at the Walt Disney Studios, and they worked uh, in Hollywood as well. And so uh, what we saw back in 1965 was an opportunity. We realized that there was precious little information concerning African-American history. And here we were as filmmakers, writers, directors, storytellers. Why not use our talents and produce a series of films on, on this uh, somewhat neglected part of history? And so that's why our first series uh, became a series on African-American history back in 1960. I guess we started making these films about around 1966. So uh, that's when production started on, on uh, I believe, our first uh, educational film. And of course, other films followed, followed that one. Now, I, I'll have to say that uh, we weren't, you know, trying to be pioneers and we weren't trying to do anything uh, significant. We were just uh, filmmakers using our talents and hopefully that something good could come out of all of that. And so by using film for more than just entertainment, but for education, uh, I think we were able to, uh, you know, use our abilities and also hopefully do some good. Absolutely. And that whole idea of edutainment, uh, that, that is sort of connected in the fabric of the Walt Disney Company. And so yeah. let's uh, yeah, talk is. a bit about your time at, uh, at the studios and, uh, Brett, I know uh, you had a question there. Yes, well, in your past interviews, you modestly say that you don't feel that you're a pioneer in any way. No, not at all. And that you're not breaking <laughs> any, any barriers, but you said that the only barrier at Walt Disney Studio was talent. If you right. had that, if you had the goods, then Walt would welcome you in. Exactly. So, so could you tell us a little bit about working with Walt? I say a bit, but you know, we could go on for multiple episodes, but just your feelings yeah. about, about working with Walt. <laughs> I think it's interesting because I have to remind people that when I started at the Walt Disney Studio, and not just me, but uh, a lot of the men and women who started with me, and I have to remind people who often think of Disney as the boys club, we had a number of talented young women who came into the apprenticeship program along with us guys. So we had, uh, we had the guys and the girls. We all came in as kids. And we were all uh, basically trying to prove ourselves as young artists, you know. And, and we were there at Disney for a, uh, basically for an education. Disney was simply an extension of our art training. We had all been to art school. At least most of us had attended art school, art colleges and whatever. 
but our real education began at the Walt Disney Studio. And we had a month, 30 days, to prove ourselves worthy of being employees of the Walt Disney Studios. So, you know, they gave us some time, but we had the finest teachers and trainers in the world. So couldn't do better than that. Well, that kind of goes back to, um, say, after Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, that it seems as though the studio was very, uh, they looked for talent yeah. and they, uh, they mentored that talent. So, you know, so Indeed. there's a long yeah. history from the beginning of, uh, of the studio, it seems. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Walt Disney was all about finding talent. Keep in mind that back when the studio took its first baby steps, there were really no schools teaching animation. You know, you didn't go to school and learn how to become an animator. You learned that job, you know, you, you learn how to do that job on the job. You learn from those who were already doing it. So if you wanted to be a background artist, a layout artist, an animator, a director, you had to come to the studio and essentially learn that job on the job, you know. And, and, and Disney was very good about having a mentoring program. Uh, so much with all of us kids, and, and we were all kids back then. We were all in our late teens, early 20s. But we learned from these Disney masters, the men and women who made the Disney classic films. They were our teachers. They were our instructors. And boy, were they tough because Disney standards were high. And if you, if you didn't cut it, <laughs> you were going to have to move on and go someplace else because Disney had a reputation to maintain. Uh, they were the premier animation studio, and Walt Disney would settle for nothing but the best. So we knew the bar was high when we started there. And our only responsibility was to qualify, you know, to meet that bar and to be worthy of being a Disney employee. So we didn't think about, we didn't think about ethnicity. We didn't think about race. We didn't think about gender, uh, sexual orientation, none of that. We, we thought about being the best we could be because when it came right down to Walt Disney, that's all he cared about. Were you good or were you not good? And so we, we would have to strive to be really, really good. Now, you started at uh, the company as an in-betweener for Sleeping yeah. Beauty. Can you, um, for people that might not understand animation as well, you, you mentioned a lot of different positions within animation. Could you yeah. talk a bit about uh, what an in-betweener is versus a layout artist, That just something uh, so we can educate ourselves a little bit? Yeah, it's kind of funny when I think about uh, old school animation and, and the, the various jobs and the terminology. Uh, actually, when I look back on it, it was really so simple because you had, you had a writer, you had an animator, you had a layout artist and a background artist. And then, of course, you had the, the, the ladies who would paint the, the cells. So in a sense, that might sound like a lot of job you know, classifications, a lot of job categories. But really, compared to today's jobs, good heavens, every time I go see a movie, I see credits for jobs that didn't even exist 10 years ago, 20 years ago. These jobs were non-existent. So in a sense, the, the old way of doing things, the analog way of filmmaking was really quite simple. And the, and the categories were, were simple because after all, you had the writer, the story people who wrote the story. You had the layout artists who were basically the art directors, the background artists who provided the scenics, the backgrounds, and you had the animators who were essentially the actors, the performers. And so, you know, those categories are, are, are pretty few compared to the multitude of categories in animated filmmaking today. So, but, but the one thing uh, we all had in common was that everybody started out in the same job. That is, you started out as an in-betweener. Didn't matter whether you were going to be a background artist or a writer, he started out as an in-betweener, and that was the lowest rung of the ladder. And that was your entry level. That was the job everybody had to do in order to get to that eventual job that they, you know, they were trying to get to. So I tell people, it sounds like a crazy job, but an in-betweener is exactly what it sounds like. You're an artist putting a drawing 
in between two other drawings. Now, it sounds crazy, but that's why it's called an in-between. It is a drawing in between two other drawings. Now, I think everybody knows that animation is consists of many, many, many drawings, hundreds, thousands of drawings. And of course, to make this animation move smoothly, you have to have drawings in between other drawings. So that movement on the screen is going to be silky smooth. Well, somebody has to make those drawings. And it's, it's tedious. It's meticulous. It's, uh, it's uh, boring in some cases, but it's a very necessary job. So we all started out as apprentice in-betweeners and everybody had to prove themselves as an in-betweener before they could move on to a higher level of, uh, of a job classification. So we all started out, you know, you know, we started out on the, on the, on the starting line. We all started out even. And of course, you know, you go from there and, and if, if you were willing to work hard and really, uh, strive to be, you know, fantastic uh, Disney filmmaker, you might end up a director, you might end up a producer, you might end up, who knows what you might end up as. But we all started out at that starting point as in-betweeners. The lowest rung on the ladder was where everybody started. Fred, I think you had a follow-up question to, particularly with working with Walt uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you knew Walt as your boss. Wow. <laughs> Only as my boss. People often think of that I know Walt as a buddy, as yeah. a pal. But as, as a, a boss. Which, but only, know, only as a boss. Amazing. That's, well, that's amazing. But we all know him as, um, well, Walt Disney, the legend. Yeah, and, of course. Yeah. And since his passing in 1966, his critics from time to time, they want to chip at his icon or legendary status. You bet. By, yeah, yeah by um, looking into his character faults, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. And we don't, I think what we, we forget that he was number one, a real person. Yes. <laughs> he was human. Yeah. And, and I think that sometimes the critics um, look through a revisionist view, yeah. a revisionist lens, and they kind of place the current views and values and feelings on a man mm -hmm. that was born in 1901. Right, right. Do you have, could you speak with that about a little bit or what were your observations? Oh, you, bet. you bet. Well, I, I have to remind people, I said, keep in mind when I came to work at the Walt Disney Studio, I never expected to, well, I thought I might see Walt Disney, but no way in the world would I ever work with him. Uh, keep in mind, I was just a young kid. Uh, Walt Disney was already the age of my parents, maybe even my grandparents. So he was an older gentleman and regarded as legendary, even back in the 50s. I mean, he was a, a basically a living legend. And so uh, just seeing Walt Disney in the hallway was kind of like a big deal just to see him walk by. Uh, those of us who had the nerve might even had the courage to speak to him and say, uh, hi, hi, Walt. You know, he didn't call him Mr. Disney. He didn't like that. He had to address him as Walt. So you'd say, uh, hello, Walt, or good morning, Walt. And that, if you had enough courage to do that. Now, keep in mind, it was a decade before I, I even met Walt Disney. I had been at the studio for 10 years before uh, I even came to his attention. So we certainly did not meet right away. I'm sure Walt Disney had no idea who most of us were, you know, we were not important. We were just a bunch of young kids, uh, you know, learning our way. And uh, some of us would move on. Some of us would stick around. And some of us might even uh, advance in the company and, and go on to become uh, writers, directors, producers. That might happen as well. But it was certainly nothing I ever anticipated. Uh, I had been at the studio 10 years when Walt Disney discovered me, or some might say exposed me, <laughs> because Walt found me. And so that's how I had this remarkably good fortune to have been given the opportunity to work with Walt Disney. That was never anticipated. I never in a million years thought I would ever be in the same room with Walt Disney. Keep in mind, there were hundreds of people, uh, maybe even uh, thousands, who worked at the studio. 
That's a lot of people, a lot of employees. Maybe a dozen people met on a regular basis with Walt Disney. Maybe a dozen or so. Imagine being in that same room with Walt Disney. You know, what in the world, you know? <laughs> I still look back on it and I can't believe that I was in multiple meetings with Walt Disney. How many people would have given anything to have been in that room with the boss himself? But there I was, not because it was something that I tried to attain. Uh, it was just a matter of uh, the boss discovered me, wanted me there. And believe you me, if, if Walt hadn't wanted me in that room, I would not have been there. So, uh, you know, it, it was his decision. Now, people ask me, what was Walt Disney like? Well, I had to tell people, I'm going to be honest, he was a tough boss. Walt was very demanding. He wanted only the best, and he only accepted your best. And uh, if you were a wise employee, you best not uh, disappoint him. Now, I'll also have to say that Walt Disney uh, was not a perfect man. He would admit that himself. He drank too much. He certainly smoked too much. We know that for sure. That's what took his life. But on the other hand, he was the fairest boss I ever worked for, the most respectful man I ever worked for. He treated people no matter who you were, no matter what you were. He treated all people with respect. And so whenever I hear Walt Disney being referred to as a gender bigot, as an anti-Semite, as a racist, and a lot of big shot Hollywood people have called Walt Disney those names. Well, I can tell you firsthand that that's not true. That's not the man I knew. That's not the man I worked for. And so I have to continually call out Hollywood big shots who like to label Walt Disney as a racist, uh, was treated women unfairly, uh, you know, was just not uh, open to minorities working at his studio. Those accusations are false. They are false. They are, they are not true. And uh, those of us who had the, the pleasure and privilege with working with the old man, and we say that respectfully, the old man, uh, have to continually defend the boss because there are people who want to tear him down. For some reason, people do not like uh, heroes and they want to find, uh, I guess, chinks in the armor. They want to find fault. They want to find imperfection. Well, they can always find it because after all, we're human. We're not perfect. And Walt Disney was not a perfect man by any means. But was he a good man? I'm here to tell you he was one of the best men I've ever known in my life. That's wonderful. And, you know, it's, it's so great to be able to hear from someone with those kind of interactions and yeah. uh, at those meetings. And it's, yeah. it's so wonderful. Now, right. uh, changing, like gears bit, <laughs> yeah. changing gears a little bit. Changing gears a bit. Yeah, you should talk to, to Richard Sherman, the, the composer. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, we'll put that on the list. Yeah, Thank you. Do you have <laughs> yeah. We'll call him if you want. <laughs> yeah, uh, Robert yeah. and Richard Sherman uh, work closely with Walt Disney. And uh, boy, the stories they could tell because they were really, they had a very personal relationship with, uh, with Walt Disney. And, um, you know, they have a lot of stories to tell. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Vanessa actually wanted to talk to you a bit about your recent appearance uh, this past month on Pawn Stars. <laughs> what, a, what a surprise. Getting, <laughs> getting rid of uh, some of your wares. I, I will say, I was going to save this joke for the end, but yeah. if you have anything you want to sell for $2,000, you have three people that are probably willing to buy it. So <laughs> you, uh, you let us know. Um, but, but Vanessa, you had a, a question about that. Oh, yeah. Well, that was yeah. such a great uh, clip that I've seen from, from Pawn Stars. Love the show and loved your yeah. appearance on there. Um, you said something when you were talking to Rick Harrison that, you know, you, you didn't get in trouble at Disney uh, because you knew how to make Walt laugh. And, yeah. you know, we, we hear these descriptions of Walt, how he's kind of a tough boss. And I was just wondering, you know, what the heck makes, what, how do you make Walt laugh? How, how would we do that? <laughs> how did you do that? Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you, here, here, here's something that really saved me. Keep in mind that, uh, once again, I, 
consider this. I never thought I'd ever be in a meeting with Walt Disney. I never thought I would pitch story ideas to Walt Disney. That just never crossed my mind. I was a kid. I was a nobody. I, I was not a, uh, an established, you know, Disney veteran with many, many years at the studio. So I, I never even saw myself in a, in a meeting with Walt Disney. You know, and lo and behold, uh, back in 1966, I found myself, much to my own shock and surprise, on the story team of The Jungle Book and having to pitch ideas to Walt Disney. And Walt was dissatisfied with the first iteration of The Jungle Book. He wasn't happy with it at all. Thought it was too dark, too, too dreary, too, too mystical, too, such a downer. He just hated the movie. And he didn't want that movie. He wanted something different. But he didn't tell us what it was. We knew what he didn't want but we didn't know what he did want. Now, here's where uh, growing up Disney really saved my bacon. As a kid, I had grown up watching Disney movies, listening to Disney songs, uh, reading Disney comic books. Uh, I was totally immersed in Disney as a child. So when Walt Disney was dissatisfied with the first iteration of The Jungle Book and wanted something else, People were scratching their heads and saying, gee, I wonder what, do you, I wonder what Walt wants. And, you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm no genius, but I knew what he wanted. He wanted a Disney movie. He wanted a Disney movie. That's what was missing. That's what he wasn't getting. And thankfully for me, I knew what that was because I had been totally immersed in Disney since I was a child. I knew what a Disney film was. I knew what Disney characters were like. Uh, I knew that, that when you went to the theater to experience a Disney film, it's a film that made you laugh and smile, but it also made you cry. You know, it touched you. It, 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 it really grabbed you emotionally. When a film has all of those qualities, then that's a film Walt Disney is going to like, you know. So I knew what the old man wanted. Yeah, never speaking down to to children or to the audience. You know that never, I, I brought that never. up, and uh, yeah. we we talk about that a lot. We we just did a review of Onward um, when it came out in March, and and just those ideas of grief yeah. and loss that are translated in such a way that my my four year old gets it. You know, like he yeah. he talked to me about in that film. They they make allusion to uh, the father dying and and being connected to tubes, and he was like, you know what why was he connected to tubes? So you have that, that yeah. conversation with him Well, that they were trying to save him. And, you know, just some, some remarkable things there. Um, isn't, isn't, I, that, isn't that remarkable because, um, boy, and I've forgotten the director's name now. The writer, the writer director of Onward is, is, is a, a young, young man that I work with at Pixar uh, some years ago. And uh, so I know him. And, and uh, I remember I was at a party in Beverly Hills all this fancy Hollywood talk here. I'm in a party at, in Beverly Hills with, with the same director and, and, and Helen Mirren was there. And I, I remember being sort of like Gaga because I, oh boy, I'm having a glass of wine with Helen Mirren, but it doesn't get much better than that. But anyway, the, the same director who had directed the Onward had directed the film at that time, uh, Monsters University. And so uh, we had just seen Monsters University and then uh, some years later, he, his new film would be this film called Onward that I had, uh, you know, I had misgivings about the film. I just wasn't sure if this movie was going to work. So, you know, I, 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 I just was somewhat hesitant. And I saw the film and I was totally blown away. And I immediately contacted the director and said, I just saw your movie. You know, I just saw your film. What a film. What a story. You did it, man. You knocked me out. You made me laugh. You made me cry. You did everything that a film is supposed to do. And I was just so proud of him. And, and it's really great to be in the position where you have the opportunity to go to the filmmakers and tell them when they've got something good, when sometimes even they don't know when they've got something good. I saw a film at Disney some years ago that was co-written co and co-directed by a woman, uh, Jennifer Lee. Film hadn't even been released yet. 
No one had seen it. And I went to Jennifer, saw her, saw her on the Disney lot one day, and I said, Jennifer, I want you to know I saw your movie. I saw your movie. That film is going to change your life. And she said, what? And I said, that movie, your film, Frozen, is going to change your life. Well, it did. It did. Change, changed all of our lives. Yeah, uh, yeah. Especially as a, as a parent of a young child. Uh, yeah. That, that film franchise uh, is That's right. Else. But isn't it um, great to be, to be at the Walt Disney Studio or Pixar Animation Studios and to be there uh, where this magic is being created and to know the people who are doing the job and to be there to support them, to, you know, to back them up, to encourage them, and to let them know when they've done a darn good job. And nothing gives me more pleasure to tell a writer or director, no matter who he or she might be, to say, you did a heck of a job. Congratulations. You know, you made me laugh. You made me cry. You did your job. And so, uh, you know. And I've had the pleasure of, of meeting so many young people. I remember a young man who was just out of school who came to Disney back, back in the 90s. And uh, just a kid, once again, just, just out of college. And I saw his work. And I told my friends, I said, that kid over there, one day, he's going to be a writer-director. And his films are going to be watched by millions of people. I knew it. I knew it then. And that kid went on to, to write and direct a number of films, uh, most notably the, the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, where he uh, co-wrote and, and co-directed. Actually, he directed the last two by himself, and that was Dean Debois, uh, who I work with on the film Mulan back in the 90s. I knew Dean would one day be a writer-director because I knew he was darn good. And I told people that, Early on, I said, watch this kid. He's going to be going places because he's good. I will tell you what, one of your best qualities, I think, uh, from this brief conversation with you is how modest you are about yourself and your accomplishments <laughs> and how giving you are to others. I have a lot to be modest about. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, um, definitely the... The offer is always there. I know you uh, told Rick that he could come back and see your stuff, but uh, you know yeah. you can always let us know if you have a Floyd <laughs> Norman French you're looking to get rid of. Okay, um, yeah, but yeah. I I did want to talk to you a bit about uh, Sword in the Stone. Uh, it's it's one of my all time favorites, and so can you talk to us a little bit about that process? Uh, that yeah. was. A few years after Sleeping Beauty, so were you feeling more uh, ingrained in the studios at that point? Were you feeling a little bit safer, or was it what was the process like? Yeah, it's interesting because um, Sword in the Stone was the, uh, I guess it was my third film, because after all, I had worked on Sleeping Beauty. That was my first feature film. Sleeping Beauty was followed by the 101 Dalmatians. That was my second film, and Sword in the Stone would be my my third film. And I remember being at the Disney studio and my boss calling me in uh, one day and telling me that I would be moving my, uh, my office down to D-Wing because I was going to be working with Milt Call on the Sword and the Stone. I would be his assistant on the Sword and the Stone. Well, I want you to know that I, I was somewhat terrified because Milt Call was one of the finest artists at the Walt Disney studio. He's one of the nine old men. And Milt was one of the guys known to have a terrible temper. Milt was, he was a big guy. He was loud. He was boisterous. He was demanding. The kind of guy where if he didn't like your work, he might pick it up and throw it at you. So when I found out I was going to be working for Milt Call, I was terrified. I, I really was. I thought, oh, my goodness, am I good enough? I don't think I'm. Am I up to this job? Am I qualified to do this job? What did my boss think when he when he assigned me to Milt Call. So with uh, somewhat, you know, trepidation, I moved my office down to D-Wing. And I spent the next two years working on the Sword and the Stone with the formidable Milt Call. And I'm happy to say that the very scary uh, directing animator and myself got along very well. And I learned so much from Milt. And once again, one of the things that saved me was because I made him laugh. 
And so that's, that's, uh, that's one of the things that gets me through. Uh, I, I, I love to draw gags. I love to make fun of people. I love to, you know, to poke, poke fun at Walt Disney even. And uh, Milt, all of that was just hilarious. And so as long as I could keep Milt laughing, uh, I got along with him just fine. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And now, Brett, I know yeah. you had uh, some questions about Jungle Book. Yeah, well, actually, you were going back to Jungle Book. And thanks to Disney Plus, well, I also have the DVD. Um, yeah. I was able to rewatch, rewatch the Jungle Book last night in preparation oh yeah. and all the extras. Yeah. And I especially enjoyed your, uh, your conversation with Richard Sherman and Diane Disney Miller. Yeah, wasn't uh, that wasn't that special? And yeah, was, and it was at the uh, the Disney Family Museum. Yeah, in San it was Francisco. At the, it was at the Walt Disney Family Museum up in San Francisco, and so. uh, a, a, a a venue I visit quite often because I had the opportunity to work with Walt's daughter in uh, putting that museum together. How good! That is yeah. so. That's amazing. Yeah. I well, I think Richard Sherman was talking about. Walt telling this the story or the pitch it's hard to say pitch when you own the studio but yeah <laughs> were, were you at that meeting were you at the oh meeting? wait wait when when Walt was uh pitching yeah the, the jungle book yes no I no. I was not because that was uh, so that was the first time around maybe or anyway yeah that that was that was uh keep in mind uh I I I keep assuming people know all this stuff but uh the jungle book was initially uh uh, the screenplay and the storyboards were done by Walt's ace storyman, a gentleman by the name of Bill Pete, who was who had been with Disney since the 1930s. So he was a veteran, oh, wow. and he was good. He was more than good. He was darn good. Bill Pete was, for a lot of us kids who were learning the ropes, he was one of our heroes. And so when Walt Disney uh, turned the Jungle Book over to Bill Pete, Bill was on the film for about a year. And when Walt saw what he had done a year later, he did not like it at all. Yeah, and so, yeah, so Bill Pete stormed out of the studio. He, you know, yeah. basically that's it. I quit. That's I'm it. out of here. And so Walt said, well, I still want to make this movie. And he said, I'm going to put together a new story crew. And of course, that's where, that's where I come in because I had no idea that one of the members of that story crew was going to be me. <laughs> I never saw that coming. If I had heard that Walt Disney was going to put together a story crew, I would assume he's going to find the, some of the best people he could find. And that would not, that would not be me, you know, <laughs> automatically. And that would not be uh, me. And so when my boss called me in and, and one Friday afternoon and said, uh, Floyd, I want you to pack up your office. You're moving upstairs to, uh, to the second floor, and I knew that the second floor was the story wing. That's where the stories were written. That was a very important, uh, very important floor. Walt Disney didn't come down to the first floor all that much, but boy, oh boy, he was always up there in the second floor because that's what got his attention. So I said to my boss, what in the world, why in the world am I moving up to 2C on the second floor of the, of the building? He said, because you're gonna work with Walt Disney on the Jungle Book. Now you can imagine, I said, what? <laughs> you, so you're, you're going to work with Walt Disney on the Jungle Book. And it's like, okay. it's, it's almost as though I, I, I heard it, but didn't hear it. Like, yeah. what, what did you just say? <laughs> you know, how many drinks did you have at lunch today? <laughs> <laughs> We've heard about those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so, I think, yeah. well, if, if you would go back again, still a, uh, the Jungle Book. If you go back to the documentary, your documentary, mind you, yeah. we're talking about your documentary anyway. Mm -hmm. um, when when you were working on the storyboards and um, you were excited about the Ka and Mowgli scene, yeah, and you thought, yeah. "Well, I'm going to show that to Walt." You felt that you were ready, so that takes a lot of uh, well, well uh, that, bravery. <laughs> That's our job. That's yeah, your that's job. A, but for Walt to say, you know, this scene needs a song. That's going to mm -hmm. be an amazing thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, he knows it and he knows that he loves it. And, he, yeah. and then that's where Trust in Me came. Yeah, from. yeah. He, uh, Walt felt that he, he liked the sequence, thought it was good. But he thought the sequence could be better. 
and, and it, need, it needed to be enhanced. So what better way to enhance a, a, a good, funny sequence than by uh, adding a song? And so naturally we said, well, Walt, we don't have a song. And Walt said, ah, no problem. Don't worry. I'll have the Sherman brothers write a song for you. Robert and Richard Sherman literally had a song uh, written for us in a week. In a week's time, uh, Vance and I, Vance was my writing partner, Vance Gary, a wonderful gentleman who I work with on the Jungle Book. Vance Gary and I went over to recording stage A with our actor, the marvelous Sterling Holloway, whose voice I had been listening to since I was a child. I mean, I mean this seriously. I had been listening to Sterling Holloway's voice since I was a child when my mommy would take me to see Disney movies and I would hear the voice of Sterling Holloway. Here I am with Sterling on recording stage A and he's recording Trust in Me with all of that sibilance, you know. But... What a, you know, when you think about that, this is a kid's dream come true. Think about it. I'm a little kid growing up in Santa Barbara. My mommy takes me to to a movie, and uh, I think the film was Dumbo. The stork was voiced by Sterling Holloway, played, uh, played the stork delivering the babies. And then flash forward to a number of years. That little kid is now grown up. That little kid is now at the Walt Disney Studio with the same voice actor that he had heard many, many years ago. And now Sterling Holloway is doing the voice for one of my characters. You think about that, that's incredible. Talk about, uh, talk about a kid's uh, dream coming true. That, that truly is a dream come true. Absolutely. Well, um, jumping ahead uh, kind of in your career and you were able to work at Disney through those classic years, but also on into the Renaissance. And I mean, we can talk about your work in the, the 70s and 80s, uh, probably for the next two weeks if we wanted to. Yeah. But uh, jumping there's into a lot, the, yeah. yeah, there's a lot there. There's a uh, lot, it, it's, a, it's a long, <laughs> long career. Yeah, it's great. Many, and it's stuff films. that I, it, it's, 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 it's art and, and TV shows that I love, the Hanna-Barbera. I mean, love them. And yes, I did eat a lot of your, a lot of the cereal that was, <laughs> A lot of the sugar, the sugared cereal. Yes, and, thank you. That's right. That's yeah. right. Like Johnny um, Quest and yeah, all of those. So. Yeah, but isn't that funny? Oh, isn't that funny how, how you get these weird uh, pivots in your career? I had never planned to go to Hanna Barbera in the seventies. It just so happened things worked out that I ended up at Hanna Barbera, working on you know the Flintstones and Scooby Doo and Johnny Quest and all of that stuff. Never, never planned on doing that. It's just one of those things that kind of just happened. And so I managed to stay at Hanna-Barbera for like seven years, doing all that stuff before eventually returning to Disney, which was really my home anyway. But uh, isn't that remarkable how, how your, your career can always have strange twists and turns? But that, after all, that's what makes life interesting. Well, you know, I think that um, you have been evolving your style and, and what you're willing to do as far as art uh, along with the company. And so I wanted to, to talk a bit about that evolution of technology uh, yeah. going in from the classic Disney, which you, I mean, you've worked in every phase of the company, which is just absolutely mind boggling when you think it about it. It seems like it, yeah. <laughs> uh, from classics to the Renaissance to now Pixar. Um, yeah. Can you talk about their embrace of technology? Yeah, well, you know, it, it was the natural evolution. I, I was invited to give a talk a few years ago at the developers, the Apple Developers Conference in San Francisco. Uh, every year, Apple would have a conference of all of their developers, uh, really, really smart people who would come together annually and to discuss technology. Well, lo and behold, one year, Apple invited me to be one of their speakers. Once again, another one of those good golly moments of like, Apple wants me to do what? <laughs> wants me to come to the Apple's developers conference and, and, and speak to all of these, these, these programmers and hardware engineers and software designers and all of these smart people. And they want me to be one of the people to lecture at the, at the conference. So I was totally blown away. But then I realized, 
one of the things I realized that the Walt Disney Studio has always been evolving and, and developing. And so uh, I, I realized that I, I was able to speak on the subject of innovation. Uh, it's creativity, but it's also innovation. And, and that's important, you know. And so uh, I found myself being right at home at Apple and uh, being right at home with, with technology because one of the things Walt Disney loved, Walt Disney was a pioneer. He was an innovator. He looked forward to the future. Yeah, he was nostalgic about the past but he looked forward to the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Brett, uh, did you have a question about uh, working at Pixar and sort of the, the differences there uh, within Pixar? Uh, and their yeah, how is it, sure, how is it similar and how is it different to uh, the process uh, that you had yeah. working on those Disney classic films? Uh, yeah, it, 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 is, yeah it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because they, they appear on the surface to be so different. And yet storytelling is, is still storytelling. Uh, filmmaking is still filmmaking. What Pixar added to the mix was bringing in new technology. And, and that's what uh, you might say uh, pushed us forward or sent animation off into a totally uh, different place. Uh, not a big surprise for me because I saw it coming. So I was not uh, blindsided by the... Uh, by the uh, technological revolution in animation. Uh, because once again, Walt Disney was an innovator and had Walt lived, he would probably have been doing the same thing, the same things Pixar was doing. I was eager to go to Pixar uh, back in the early nineties because kind of a funny story. Uh, there was a guy there that I really admired, a uh, technologist. Uh, a really smart man, and I wanted to meet him. His name was Steve Jobs, <laughs> and so yeah. one of the reasons one of the reasons I, I was so eager to to pack my bags and to move up to the Bay Area was because I wanted to meet Steve, and thankfully I was able to do that, and uh, that was quite an experience all all by itself, and so. Um, Steve, Steve was, uh, and, and, and I bring up Steve Jobs because this, there's a real Walt Disney connection here. I've had the opportunity to uh, meet some amazing people during my life. Uh, Walt Disney was certainly uh, an amazing gentleman, uh, innovator, uh, brilliant, uh, forward thinker. Uh, uh, and some people would say it's somewhat crazy. <laughs> Steve Jobs was, was much the same. Steve Jobs, like Walt Disney, was highly opinionated, uh, very innovative, uh, very forward-thinking, looked to the future, uh, looked to doing the impossible. A lot of people thought he was nuts as well. I find that brilliant people are often perceived as, as, as crazy men, as I call them. I, the people think they're crazy, but they're always with us. There's always a Walt Disney. There's always a Steve Jobs. There's always an Elon Musk. Crazy, right. crazy men with crazy ideas who do amazing things. So, uh, yeah, some kind of eccentric quality with all of them and, and all yeah. of that. So, exactly uh, things that other people don't. Yeah, yeah, and some of the things seem to, uh, at times, defy logic. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, some of their ideas are just so off the wall. Uh, you know, it's like, what is he doing? He's doing what? You know. And people You're going to have a personal about, phone that walks around with you yeah, everywhere you yeah. go. And, oh, no, that's going to be a computer, too. And yeah. Is, isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Ima but imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, we, uh, we don't want to uh, let you go without talking about the documentary that we all love. Uh, it came out in 2016, Floyd Norman and Animated Life. And it's co-directed by uh, Michael Fiera and uh, also Eric uh, Sharky. And yeah. so we, we really, you know, Vanessa had a question in particular about how that came to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, not many of us have documentaries about our lives. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just wondering, you know, this, this documentary after watching, it, it's wonderful. I can't wait to make everybody watch it because it's so good. 
Um, but it, it's not um, always, I mean, it shows some challenges in your life, happy times, but also challenging times. And I just wondered what that was like for you and, and what made you want to say yes to having your life on display and for us all to enjoy. Well, you know, it's interesting. And, and I often think about that myself because number one, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker myself and I've made documentaries and I know what it takes to make a movie. I know the time you put in, I know the money it costs. And so whenever anybody approaches me with a, with a movie idea, I often say, are you, are you sure you want to do this? Cause it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to cost a lot of money. Are you really sure you want to do this? And so, so when, uh, Michael and Eric approached me and said, we would like to do a documentary uh, based on your life and career. My first thoughts were, are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> you want to do what? But they were really committed. And I understand the commitment of a filmmaker being a filmmaker myself. And so I said to the guys, if you guys really want to do this, if you truly want to make this commitment, then I'm yours. I'm not going to stand in your way. I'm not going to look over your shoulder. I'm not going to hinder you in any way. Make the movie you want to make. Tell the story you want to tell. I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you to do the right thing. The one thing I can tell you is uh, I have a life that doesn't have a lot of tragedy. So I noticed that most good documentaries, they always they always deal with a tragic life or a person who has tremendous challenges and upheavals in their life and oh, terrible things happen. Cause you know, that's the drama of a documentary. People's lives are often a mess. And I said, my life has been way too happy to be a documentary because I, I don't really have any real tragedy in my life. I grew up in a perfect community of Santa Barbara. I had a very supportive uh, family and friends uh, my life in many ways has been almost idyllic. So I don't have a lot of misery for you. So if you can make do with a happy life, then you can tell my story because my story gets by and large a happy life. I'm a, I've got a lot to be thankful for. Uh, a lot of good things have happened to me and I've met and worked with amazing and wonderful people. I have essentially, uh, basically I tell people I have love stories to tell. You know, you know, I don't have terrible stories to tell. I don't know terrible people. I know good people. I know marvelous people, talented people, some of them unknowns, some of them famous. And they become my friends and they become pals. And I can't believe some of the people that I've met and gotten to know and have been guests in their homes. And these are not just ordinary people. They're famous people. They're rich people. And they're my pals. So, and I look at my life and I say, why me? How did all this good stuff happen to me? I'm a really, really lucky guy, you know? So, again, that- good things that, happen to good people, right? Yeah. Well, well, that's a nice way to put it, I guess. <laughs> but I love, I love to tell people that I said, when you walk out of my documentary, you're not going to walk out in tears. You're not going to walk in watching, having watched a sad, miserable life. I said, you will leave my film knowing that what I did was a lot of fun. And I had a good time doing it. I had a great life. I had uh, wonderful children and grandchildren and, and great friends, friends that I've known all my life and, and, and kids that I've grown up with that I've that I work with, that I've, I, I've, I've attended their marriages. Uh, you know, I've watched their children grow up. I've gotten to know their kids and their grandkids. It's all been good. You know, it's, it's been a good life. So I have no complaints. I have no, no gripes. And it's just been, uh, I hate to say it. It's been like a Disney movie, you know, <laughs> you know, well, we, movie, happy ending. <laughs> yeah. well there's no happy yeah. ending yet. It's like happy yeah. continuing. Exactly. Well, I loved the intro when you were like, life of poverty. Just kidding. I'm like, I like this guy. I like this guy. So that's, yeah. the thing, so. that's something I do. Okay, yeah, but I yeah. did, but I, I, when I was watching today, yeah, at the end, there were, there were tears, but they were tears of, of happiness and, and, and just yeah. the influence and 
the respect that you had from your peers yeah. that you have from your peers, yeah. you know, if when you're looking back at, at all of that, yeah. I think that, you know, that you're respected by your peers. Whoopi Goldberg loves you. I mean, <laughs> these are good things. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love to tell people that I think a, a pinnacle point in my life where I stopped and, you know, for a moment of reflection, I was at Disneyland for the 60th anniversary of the park, the park's opening, you know, 60 years had gone by and Disneyland was 60 years old. And I was able to spend that day. And, and I, I thought about this for a while. I was able to spend the day with the Disney family in their private residence at Disneyland. How many people can say I spent the 60th anniversary of Disneyland with Walt Disney's kids, with Walt Disney's grandkids, with Walt Disney's great grandkids. And I was there with them. And I looked out at the crowds on, down on the street because the, the crowds can't see you because you're up in this, uh, you're, you're high above looking down. And I'm looking down at the massive people and, and they're all having a great time in the park and celebrating. And I thought about myself and who am I with? Well, Walt's not with us any longer, but I'm with Walt's family. You know, boy, it doesn't get much better than that. Couldn't be with Walt, but I was with Walt Disney's family and, and celebrating with them. How many people, how many people get to do that? I am one lucky guy. Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, as we start to wrap up here, you, you've been so gracious with your time with us and we, we thank you for that. I, I wanted to share uh, a quick story that, that actually happened this morning. So I knew okay. that we had this interview set up and so yeah. for the first time, thanks to Disney Plus, uh, I showed my son the Jungle Book and oh, yeah. uh, he was just, he was just enthralled with it and, and, and fell in love with the, the story. And, and then I got to say, you know, daddy's going to talk to one of the creators of this movie. Uh, and, and he said, he said, people make, make these, people make these movies. And I said, yeah, yeah. And people make these movies. And he said, he said, well, I, I want to do that. And so it's just, I just hope you know that the impact that you have on a film that you made over 50 years ago, that still translates to today. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's absolutely remarkable and incredible. And that's yeah. just one of your films out of uh, the, yeah. the so many that you've worked on. Um, well, that's a, that's and, the real joy of, of what we do. We know that uh, a lot of kids, maybe little ones, five, six, seven, eight years old, they see our films and they say, I want to do that. You know, boys and girls watch our films and they say, when I grow up, I want to do that. I want to make that magic. And you know that some of them will actually do that. And that's really great, knowing that this magic is going to continue. It's going to be passed on. We're only here for a short time. We're not going to be here forever. But those who come after us will have to continue to tell the stories and make the magic. And knowing that's going to continue, it's really a very comforting feeling, knowing that it's not going to end. Uh, there will be those young men and women who will come after us and maybe do even greater things than we've done. And it's nice to know that. Vanessa, did you have a final question here? Well, you know, you, you talk about influencing kids and of course we think of Disney, but um, we also think of shows like Sesame Street. And yeah. we, we found out that you were um, on, you worked on the first two seasons and yeah. then you're back for the 50th. And I just, <laughs> I just wonder, I'm like, wow, that is such a span of time. What, what's, what's your What's your take on that? What's changed from an animator's perspective from, yeah. you know, being on that first two seasons all the way down to the 50th season? I know. It is truly amazing when I, I look back on that wonderful show that we did, that we started out doing like over 50 years ago now, and some of the amazing and talented performers. One of the most wonderful people I met during that time was, was Jim Henson. Jim Henson and the Muppets. You know, what a, what a delightful wonderful man he was kind of a in his own way a Walt Disney uh, himself you know of the Muppets uh, Jim was such a marvelous marvelous man and, and and his passing was such a terrible loss 
So have been, you know, being able to work on a show like that and then some 50 years later to be invited back onto the stage uh, of Sesame Street and to interact with Cookie Monster and feed him a chocolate chip cookie and on camera <laughs> and then to create uh, an animated segment uh, counting the number 10 where I had counted up, you know, to the number 10 over 50 years ago, I, I did it. I did it again. I did another animated short where I taught kids how to count to the number 10. And like, it's like 50 years had gone by in the blink of an eye, you know, 50 years ago, I did a bit of animation counting to 10, 50 years later, another bit of animation counting to 10 and Sesame street continues on with a new generation of kids. And once again, it's just, it's just lovely knowing that these uh, marvelous things will go on. And there's a sweetness, there's a corniness, but there's just something so charming and sweet about kids and a show that appeals to kids. Uh, you know, once again, I, it's the best job in the world. Uh, how can you even call this a job? It is doing wonderful things sharing, giving, caring, uh, you know, it makes you feel good. It's not a job. It is a, uh, it's an honor, you know, to be able to do things like that and to teach kids and to help boys and girls grow up and, and to be a part of all that, you know, it, it just doesn't get any better than that. Brett, did you have any final thoughts? No, it's just, thank you. For everything you're an inspiration to creative people i'm a digital media artist so thank thank not, you not any you know well anyway i have aspirations but anyway so well, we all do say, we all do and I, i'm still learning myself so i'm, and, I'm still working <laughs> you're an inspiration to disney people and just can i say everyone so oh, you know, well so, thank you thank you so much no it, it has been my good pleasure i tell people i've had the opportunity to entertain thousands of people, millions of people, maybe around the world. Uh, you know, what could be better than that? I look at the films that I've worked on, the stories that I've written, stories that I've told, and to be able to share this with people and to make, to make people smile, to make people laugh. What greater gift, you know, can you give than a little joy and happiness? And to be in a position to give people joy and happiness you know, you, you, you can't ask for a better job. You really can't. Oh, we need to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. T-shirt, guys. Those are yeah. words to live by. <laughs> oh, the, well, joy, the, the joy and happiness you have given to the three of us uh, yeah. is just remarkable. Thank you so much. You truly yeah. are. Uh, you truly are more than uh, a Disney legend that that moniker is with you for forever, but you're a legend <laughs> to us. Uh, and we well, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank and, you very uh, much. We, we thank you for your time. So you thank bet. You. It's been, it's been my pleasure and wow. uh, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Okay. What an excellent, wonderful, charming, amazing man that we just had the privilege of talking to. Uh, just your, your thoughts, Brett or Vanessa? There are some people who I believe are put on this earth just to be wonderful, just the best humans that you could possibly imagine. And they just inspire and bring joy to people they meet. And he, he is one of those persons. He is just sheer joy talking to him. I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever spoken to anyone with I don't know that has affected me so much in that way. He's just sheer joy to talk to. He's a beacon of happiness and humility and talent. Floyd Norman is my new hero. Who are we kidding? Uh, such a gracious and warm and kind man. And you can certainly tell why he has had such an amazing and successful career. So Morelli, that's about it. He is my new hero. Humanitarian, you know, brilliant and, genius. And even everything. when we got, even when we got off of the uh, the Zoom call with him on the recording side, uh, he, I said, how great of a storyteller he is. And then what did he say? 
He learned from the best. He learned directly um, from Walt Disney on see. storytelling. And, uh, just, just absolutely an incredible uh, honor and a privilege to be able to talk to this gentleman. Uh, thank you so much to Floyd for the interview uh, and allowing us to take a bit of your time and to get to know you a bit better because uh, we will continue to love and cherish all of that man's work for so many years to come. And it's just so incredible. Again, uh, I said it at the beginning of the podcast, but his movie, Floyd Norman, and Animated Life, is available. You can go to floydnormanmovie.com uh, to check out where you can purchase the Blu-ray. You could also uh, go to iTunes or onto Amazon and purchase it right now streaming. And I cannot recommend this enough for a Disney fan. Oh, yes. It, uh, well, I loved the documentary. First of all, I love documentaries. I love all things Disney and I love documentaries about the creative process. So this checks off all of those and I loved it and you will love it too. So please go and check this movie out and, and let them, let, let us know what you think about it. You can of course find us at nprillinois.org. You can also follow us along on Facebook at Beyond the Mouse Podcast or the Front Row Network. And you can follow us on Twitter on Front Row Reviews with a Z. This is your first time listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. We'd love it if you uh, go ahead and subscribe to us and listen to all the things that we have coming in the future because uh, who knows? We just talked to a Disney legend. I think the, the sky's the limits from here. So uh, we, again, really appreciate Floyd's time. So any final thoughts, Vanessa? Um, I, I'm just feeling so good right now. I, I feel so calm and peaceful and excited and joyful and all those things. And I'm pretty sure that anyone who's listening is going to feel that way. And if you've watched the Floyd Norman and animated life, you're going to feel that way. If you have it, do yourself a favor, go watch that documentary. Brett. <laughs> any, any final thoughts on this interview wow well just wow how about that floyd norman uh is an amazing person creative talent and gift to the world how about that and go watch the documentary because it's amazing thank you absolutely absolutely well thank you all for listening so much for beyond the mouse i am craig i'm vanessa and i'm brett and we will see you real soon in the front row. Thanks everybody. And thank you, Floyd Norman. You are thank just you. amazing. Thank you.